0: Hi, I'm your host Lewis, and welcome to the second episode of Searching for It. If you enjoy the show today, please do be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. There's a bit of a cliche that On the Road is a book you'll read in your late teens, you'll tell all your friends that it's changed your life, before growing out of it and maybe even becoming a bit embarrassed of it as you get older. Like many others before me, I read On the Road for the first time when I was backpacking at the age of 21 and I was quick to tell all my friends that they had to read it. I found the book exhilarating and inspiring, and I couldn't believe that a novel could change my perspective so much. And I still kind of feel that way. I remember telling my girlfriend to read the book, but I was stumped when she asked me what the book was about. And in a sense, I think that's actually the crucial part about On the Road. It's not really about anything. My girlfriend's really into literature that's got a strong narrative, but... What I was able to really say is, uh, it's about a group of friends exploring America on a road trip in the 50s. And she said that sounds kind of boring. And even when I persuaded her to give it a go, her stance didn't change. But for me, to judge on the road by its narrative is to judge it by the wrong criteria. It's like as the saying goes, judging a fish by its ability to climb a tree. The narrative isn't what drives the book. At least for me, its whole significance lies in the exploration of a concept, the concept of it. For those of you who have seen or read Into the Wild the book about the college graduate, Christopher McCandless, who abandoned his family and his belongings to Hitchhike Across America, there's a definite comparison to be made in that what makes the work special isn't the narrative, but the meaning behind the journey. But regardless, when I did try selling on the road to my girlfriend in this way, unsurprisingly, she wasn't too happy about being told that the book was about it. I mean, what the heck does that even mean? So in today's episode, we're going to be exploring the concept of it in On the Road, and hopefully providing my girlfriend with the answer she's been waiting for for all these years. But before we get going, just a quick spoiler alert to any listeners like me who hate spoilers in any shape or form. In this episode, I will be talking about what happens throughout the novel, and that includes the ending. Now, as I said, I think the book's about so much more than the narrative anyway, and knowing the ending, I don't really think detracts from the reading experience, but at least you can't say I didn't warn you. So this book, On the Road, it was written by a young American man called Jack Kerouac. And for those of you who haven't come across Kerouac, he was essentially the figurehead, or at least one of the figureheads, of the beat generation or the beatniks in 1950s America. These guys were essentially a bunch of provocative hipsters who, although having gone to top universities and having connections with famous writers, musicians, cultural icons, still managed to seclude themselves to the fringes of society. But now, when I say hipsters, I'm not talking about men with top knots and big beards and ladies in harem pants listening to indie bands you've definitely never heard of. I'm referring more just to those people who reject cultural norms in the pursuit of something bigger and better on the other side. Or according to Kerouac's own definition of hipster, which I quite like, someone who can stand on certain street corners in any foreign big city in the world and connect for pot or junk without knowing the language. It's easy to forget, but these beats, they were a pretty controversial bunch. Although today the drug use, the homosexuality and the hypersexuality that they stood for is far more normalised, it was a real crazy concept at the time. And I think you can only really appreciate how outlandish their ideas were when you compare them with groups of people today who live lifestyles that seem similarly outlandish and objectionable to the general population today. For example, let's imagine there's a group of people out there today. Let's say they all refuse to identify with a certain gender, they might all reject monogamy, and they might all opt out of full-time employment. The way that the common populace would look at them today is the same way that the Beats were perceived in their time. Having said that, while some aspects of Beat lifestyle have been normalised, Kerouac was definitely on the wrong side of history in a few respects. Perhaps most shockingly, in his description of his having slept with a 14-year-old Mexican prostitute in his book Desolation Angels, he didn't come out of that one looking very good. For those of listeners who are unfamiliar with the Beats, you might, however, have heard of a few names who formed a part of their gang. So, you had the poet Allen Ginsberg, who was known for writing Howl. You had the famously heroin addict writer William Burroughs, who wrote the book Naked Lunch. There was the Buddhist philosopher Alan Watts, and... And of course you've got the star of On the Road, Neil Cassidy. As you sometimes see, there's this strange phenomenon in which great thinkers often form a part of distinct movements which occupy a, a very specific place in history. So just as the French existentialists Sartre, Camus and Simone de Beauvoir, just as they all hung out together in Parisian cafes in the 1940s, and equally just a few years earlier, the Café Central in Vienna famously hosted the Viennese intellectual scene, which included the likes of Hitler, Trotsky, Stalin and Freud, in the same way the beat generation saw all these great cultural icons springing up alongside each other in 1950s America, originally in New York before they gradually moved on to San Francisco. And in fact, what narrative there is to be found in On the Road, largely focuses on the road trips shared between Kerouac and Cassidy and a few of their close pals between these two hotspots of New York and San Francisco. And for those of you who are particularly interested in the hippie and counterculture scene of 1960 San Francisco, it was the meetings of the beats there that largely gave rise to that whole movement particularly linked by Cassidy himself, who graduated from hanging out with Kerouac and Ginsberg, and moved on to hosting huge LSD parties, or as they called them, acid tests, with the likes of Ken Kessie and the Grateful Dead. And to form a segue into On the Road itself, I think understanding the link between the Beats and the counterculture movement of the 1960s can shine some light on precisely what the Beats were trying to achieve, and what Kerouac was looking for in On the Road. So both the Beats and those involved with the counterculture movement Both of them were all about rejecting the flowery, superfluous nothingness that they thought defined a modern-day life, and searching for something more substantial, more meaningful. So, for example, they both rejected the war on drugs because of the obstacle that it formed to the expansion of human consciousness, and they opted instead to experiment with psychedelic drugs and the doors of perception that they open up, and while also rejecting the hang-ups that society still held onto in the context of sex. And just as the acid tests of the 1960s, which hopefully we'll come on to discuss in a future episode, Just as they were essentially that, a test, an experiment into new avenues of human progression. On the road can also be read as an experiment into a new way of living and experiencing the world. But the crucial question yet to be explored in this episode is, what was this an experiment, an experiment into? As I said, on the road can be read as an exploration into a new way of living, but that doesn't really tell us very much. I mean, lots of things involve new ways of living, so, take an example, I recently deactivated almost all my social media accounts in an attempt to live more deliberately. So that's an exploration into a new way of living, but that's not what Kerouac's trying to do here. I think this is where we can bring in the concept of it. This book is essentially an experiment into it, into that exhilarating and even transcendent way of living in raw passion and ecstasy. But when I describe it in these words, I can see my girlfriend's sceptical eyes urging me to say something a bit more substantial and concrete about what's going on in On The Road. But the problem here, though, is that the concept of it is by its very nature elusive. If I could sit here and say exactly what it is and how to achieve it, I'd be a lot more well-known, I'd have a lot more money, and I probably wouldn't be sat here in my parents' attic while I record this episode. In fact, it's Kerouac's ability to present it that makes his work such genius and such a work of art. But even in On the Road, Kerouac doesn't give a precise definition of it. I think rather the concept is largely presented in how he writes rather than in what he writes. So Kerouac wrote in what he called Spontaneous Prose, which involves writing at a great pace as the thoughts and words come to his mind, with very little mental filtering, and with an exhilarating rhythm and tempo. In fact, Kerak famously wrote on the road, in a frenzied state in only three weeks, on a 120-foot scroll of paper from a typewriter that contained sheets had taped together, with no margins, no paragraph breaks, and sweating so profusely as he wrote that he went through several shirts a day. What Kerak's really able to put across through this spontaneous prose is I think the passion which he felt during his journeys across America. Kerak leaves the reader with no time for reflection, and you really get caught up in the excitement and the frenzy of it all. But this isn't to say that Kerak's all style and no substance. I mean, you could write about anything in spontaneous prose, but you wouldn't necessarily be portraying it. So, you know, I could write a review of a sports match written in spontaneous prose, and sure, it might be exciting, and the reader might really feel that excitement, but there's something more that Kerak's trying to say in on the road. Beyond the frenzy that Kerouac puts across through his spontaneous prose, there are a few common themes central to On the Road, which I think offer some kind of a peephole into that it that Kerouac's seeking out. So most fundamentally of all, On the Road is essentially an analysis of what Kerouac speculated to be the living embodiment of it, Neil Cassidy. And to avoid any confusion, when I talk about Dean Moriarty, I'm referring to the character from On the Road who represents the real-life figure of Neil Cassidy. And when I talk about Sal Paradise... I'm talking about Jack Kerouac's own character. Now, it's no secret who each character is supposed to represent. Kerouac basically just substituted real names for these pseudonyms in order to avoid any possible libel charges. And it was in Cassidy that Kerouac didn't just see a friend or even a role model. What Kerouac saw was an entirely new way of living. Cassidy's character, Dean, the jailbird who spent his youth stealing cars and joyriding in the slums of Denver is written as to embody real living in the truest and m- most exhilarating and ecstatic sense of the word. What Dean stands for is an attitude of taking or seizing what the world has to offer, and indulging in all the pleasures around him. But Dean's not one to passively absorb these pleasures, he's the guy who stands up and drives everyone forward searching for more. Jerry Garcia, the singer from The Grateful Dead, who actually lived with Cassidy for a period of time, expresses the role of Cassidy nicely when he said, he himself was the art, He was an artist, and he was the art also. Cassidy, he wasn't known for his writings or his teachings, but he was known for being quite a sensational man who lived more passionately than anyone else around him, and who spurred others on to experience the world so vigorously. But to shine a bit more light on this it that Kerouac seeks, and that Cassidy embodies, we'll take a look at a few of these key themes in which the concept of it manifests in on the road. So the first, and I actually think the most overlooked of these is the Catholicism that forms the foundation from which Kerouac begins his adventure. Now, it's easy to see Kerouac and Cassidy as a couple of hedonists, as pleasure seekers, just looking for kicks as they bum across America. But the journey for Kerouac, it was something much more personal and more deeply spiritual. In a letter to a student in 1961, Kerouac described on the road as he and Cassidy's embarkment upon what he called a journey through post-Whitman America to find that America, and to find the inherent goodness in American man. It was really a story about two Catholic buddies roaming the country in search of God, and we found him. Now, I can't speak for Kerak here, but my personal understanding is that he's using God in in a loose sense here, almost as a kind of metaphor for an absolute something that provides the meaning for everything. I mean, I don't think the traditional Catholic God would be best pleased with some of the antics he got up to, and the book doesn't really read like your stereotypical religious pilgrimage either. But having said that, The book does have a definite spiritual edge in that Kerouac is trying to catch a glimpse of that higher thing, whether you call it it or you call it God. But one of the more tangible themes in which Kerouac tries to illuminate the concept of it is through the jazz music that really sets the tone of On the Road. There's a section in the book where Cassidy, he's reflecting on their previous night in a San Francisco jazz bar, he declares that the alto man had it. So Dean, the character who represents Cassidy, responds to Sal's query into what Dean meant by it, And he says, Here's a guy and everybody's there, right? Up to him to put down what's on everybody's mind. He starts the first chorus, then lines up his ideas. People, yeah, yeah, but get it. And then he rises to his fate and he has to blow equal to it. All of a sudden, somewhere in the middle of a chorus, he gets it. Everybody looks up and knows and they listen. He picks up and carries. Time stops. He's filling empty space with the substance of our lives. Confessions of his belly button strain. Remembrances of ideas. Rehashes of old blowing. He has to blow across bridges and come back and do it with such infinite feeling, soul exploratory for the tune of the moment that everybody knows is not the tune that counts, but it. And Kerouac notes that, Dean could go no further. He was sweating telling about it. And then you've got the trademark drug taking and the liberal attitudes on sex that form a part of the soul of the novel. Kerouac and his buddies frequently experiment with marijuana throughout, a drug that probably went hand in hand with the underground jazz scene of the time. Their drug use was particularly rampant during their trips down to Mexico City, where marijuana was much more readily available and came without such a risk of stiff jail sentences. And it was also on these trips that Carak and Cassidy were known to pay long visits to brothels. Kerak recounts one particular adventure in the Mexican town of La Gregoria, in which, having got royally stoned with what Kerak called the biggest bomber anybody ever saw, ruled by a Mexican kid called Victor they met in the petrol station, Kerouac and Cassidy spent three hours in a Mexican brothel, for just 24 cents apiece listening to Mambo and, well, probably doing a lot more than just listening to Mambo. As I alluded to earlier, some readers today might have moral qualms, with Kerak's attitude towards women, and it certainly doesn't appear compatible with his self-professed devotion to Catholicism. But from the sex and the drugs and even the jazz, there's something important to take. I think the frenzy of the jazz, the bliss of the marijuana and the ecstasy of the sexual encounters all have something crucial in common, and that certain something is it. This it is not something to be written about and spoken about and debated, it's more what you feel when you truly experience the ecstasy of the moment. It's quite opposite to what, for example, ascetics might try to achieve, ascetics being those who commit themselves to self-discipline and to abstaining from indulgence. Rather, it's all about hunger and appetite and seizing the infinity of the present. Cassidy, who, through Kerouac's eyes, is the living embodiment of it, Expresses the sentiment behind the idea nicely in the following exchange between Cassidy's character Dean and Sal. So Dean says to Sal, Sal, we gotta go and not stop going till we get there. Sal replies, Where we going, man? To which Dean replies, I dunno, but we gotta go. That's one of the most quoted fragments of On the Road, and I think there's something really quite beautiful about the yearning to go there, to get it, to find it, wherever it is, because it's out there somewhere and we gotta go now. But finally, the road comes to an end, and Kerak's left to answer to the reader. Did you find it? And there's a couple of ways you can look at this. You can ask what happened to Dean Moriarty in *Sal Paradise*, and you can ask what happened in real life to Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac. And unfortunately, neither answer is particularly pleasant. So to begin with, the fictional or the semi-fictional characters, despite the optimism and the hunger of the novel, there is a definite strand of pessimism that you can't ignore that runs throughout. Kerouac was not unaware that Dean's transcendence in inverted commas came only at the expense of those around him. When you look, for example, at their iconic road trips from New York to Denver to Mexico City and to San Francisco, they are often running off the gas of others, both literally and metaphorically. Kerouac doesn't forget to mention in his novel the stolen gas, the borrowed money from relatives, and the bumming at the houses of others to save from paying their own rent, essentially living off the goodwill of others. There are ways in which Kerouac and the great American thinker Henry David Thoreau have a lot in common, and we'll come on to discuss this more in the next two episodes. But for all their spiritual endeavours, there's very little of Thoreau's individualism in On the Road. Dean was lots of things, but certainly not self-sufficient. One might even use the term flattering to deceive, to describe the romantic lifestyle of road trips and hopping freight trains across America. The characters feel as if they're shunning society and as if they're finding a new, authentic way of living, and their experiment looks successful on the surface, but really it's the blood and the sweat of others that allows them to experiment with such a lifestyle in the first place. And beyond this thread of pessimism that permeates the novel, On the Road actually ends on a pretty sour note as well. Shortly after their cheap visit to the brothel, during their final trip to Mexico, Kerouac gets sick with dysentery and is, in his words, delirious and unconscious, holed up in a Mexican room, while his best pal Dean reveals that he's off to chase some new girl in New York, leaving Kerouac there alone. Kerouac remarks, When I got better, I realised what a rat he was, but then I had to understand the incredible complexity of his life how he had to leave me there sick to get on with his wives and woes. Maybe we might grant that Dean has something. Maybe he might have it. But if this is what it is, at least the way that Kerak presents it, it's difficult to see how it could ever work as a universal law, as something that everybody lived by. If everybody lived as Dean lived, society would crumble, there'd be nobody to fill your gas, nobody to pay your rent or to buy your food. There's almost an air of entitlement and self-interest throughout the novel. Dean's there for you in the good times, but... But when the going gets tough, he's gone. And nor can we take solace from the real life fates of Kerak and Cassidy. Kerak died suddenly, aged 47, from an abdominal haemorrhage from a lifetime of heavy drinking, a dark allusion to his life of excess. Cassidy, meanwhile, didn't even last that long. He died, aged 41, in slightly mysterious circumstances. He was walking alone down a Mexican rail track after a wedding party and collapsed with some speculated involvement of barbiturate drugs. So while their whirlwind lifestyle may have had something to do with their early demise, Cassidy was also, on occasion, known to express a similar sentiment during his life, having once told a friend, 20 years of fast living, there's just not much left and my kids are all screwed up. Don't do what I've done. And in a similar vein, I've always suspected that there's a lot of truth to be found in the deathbed utterances of those whose lives have been lived. And in any list of top deathbed regrets, not spending more time with one's family is always right up there. It's easy to get caught up in the frenzy of On the Road, but I think questions still remain about the longevity of such a lifestyle. Having said all that, I think it's pretty hard to come down on one side or the other when you're weighing up the successes and the failures of Kerouac's experiment. I mean, on the one hand, you really feel like Dean and Sal are onto something throughout the novel. I find it incredible how Kerouac's able to portray such passionate sentiment that the reader can really relate to, despite never having experienced the experiences that Sal and Dean go through. You really feel like, yeah, man, that's it, that's what it's all about. But for all of Dean's raw energy there's something lacking. Dean's maybe almost a bit too raw, and doesn't leave enough time for his family or concerns for other people more generally. When I finished the novel, I found myself thinking that maybe there's a middle ground to be struck here. Through the character of Dean, Karak really hammers home the power and the beauty of living in the moment and finding ecstasy in the world around you. But there's another world, I think just as important, populated by close relationships and empathy and integrity, that perhaps somewhat lacks in on the road. In the next episode, we're going to veer off the road and look at some of Kerouac's other writings to explore whether Kerouac was able to build upon his adventures with Cassidy and find it in a more rewarding and substantial form. Until then, if you enjoyed the show today, please do subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Or if you'd like to support the show, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it.